Um, we're in Thessalonians. And so if you take your Bibles, turn there, or take your phone and turn it on and pick it up. I want to just do a brief review from uh, where we've been in the last couple of weeks. We have been going through Thessalonians, and Paul highlights a couple passages and a couple ideas that are brand new to the church. One is the parousia, or the day of Christ. We looked at that at 4, 13 through 18. And then two weeks ago, we looked at the day of the Lord, 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 through 13, and we laid uh, that out. Uh, and when I say laid that out, recognize we barely scratched the surface of both those topics, right? Uh, as best as you can do in a 30-minute sermon, there are libraries written about this. So um, it's not something that you can fix in a day. But we gave it a pretty good shot. And, and the big question then comes, okay, so when's it going to happen? How's it going to happen? Uh, all that kind of stuff. And I would like to detour off of that to another theme that shows up in Thessalonians that I actually think is more important. All right? And uh, I hope you'll agree with me uh, by the time we get done. So let's pray this morning as we get started. I was reading in the Old Testament, love chugging through there. And uh, one of the things I caught was the phrase uh, when certain people, when the king would take notice of certain people, the king would come and the servants would bow before the king and they'd say, what is it? Or how is it, O king, that you would notice a dead dog like me? Right? Anybody see that in right reading? No? Different Bible? Okay. Um, but uh, that phrase caught my attention this week. Not so much that um, we're dead dogs, but the, the approach of how is it being who I am that you would actually notice me? And they compared it to a dead dog, right? And a dead dog you just don't notice. You see lying on the side of the road and you go, oh, whatever kind of deal or how sad or you know, that kind of stuff. Um, But the idea there that the living God who's holy notices dead dogs like us is a truly amazing thing. And I just want to say this morning that if you're here and you've come to serve him, to worship him, to honor him, uh, you're already on the good side of the coin with that. He is blessed because you've done that. And so let's pray this morning. Father, as we come this morning, we recognize that it is a, an amazing idea that the living God would actually pay attention to us. That you would know us, that you had found us, that you understand us. And I pray, Lord, we're going to talk about being alert this morning in the times we live in. It's, it's a very, I think, timely and significant topic. I ask that you would uh, help us track with your spirit for unique life circumstances that we have. Lord, some of us are full of joy this morning. Some of us full of anxiety. Some of us are full of courage. Some of us are full of fear. Some of us are really washed and clean. Some of us sinned and we feel dirty. And we wondered why we even showed up. Lord, uh, that's all your domain. And we give that to you this morning and ask for your favor as we walk through what many consider was Paul's first book. And you would know if it was or not, but uh, the first ideas that he laid out of what your spirit impressed him with. And give that to you in your name. Amen. All right. So instead of uh, laying more out, because there's so many different opinions and so many different camps, and it would take five years to lay out all the different things, what I'd like to do is go in a different direction and talk about the four great encouragements that uh, Paul lays out in just a short couple verses. Number one, the encouragement in a time of grief. Number two, encouragement... Uh, in salvation. 
Number three, encouragement and the need for alertness. We're going to focus on that one especially. And then uh, the encouragement and steadfastness. Uh, we're going to look at those this morning. So let's start with the need uh, for encouragement in a time of grief. It needs to be remembered that Paul's motive for writing the book in the first place was that people had died and people were in mourning and were in grief. All right, so you have to keep that always in the backdrop of your mind. What was the motive for writing it? It was uh, to comfort people who had experienced deep grief. And in the process of experiencing deep grief, um, things got messed up. It, it did not go the way they thought. They had this vibrant expectation that Jesus was coming back. And uh, we'll pick up some other things of what they did, but I mean, th- this was just a deal, and they were sure they had it figured out, and they were sure they had God's timing uh, down, and then people started to die. And they didn't have a category for that. And, and in the process of that, they were really confused. Uh, they were uh, really hurting. These were people they loved. We don't know how many or exactly who they were, but we know it was enough to prompt Paul to write a letter to comfort him about it. Uh, they were really scared because now we had that wrong. What else do we have wrong? Right? And they were really troubled. This had not played out the way. Have you ever been there? you ever been there where the way you thought God would roll it out and the way it rolled out were two different things? Right? A uh, number of us would look back over 40 years and go, that did not go exactly the way I had it planned. Right? And uh, some of that's funny, right? We can laugh about some of it. And some of it's pretty tragic. Some of us are sitting here this morning, never, divorce was not your plan for your life. Uh, a, a death of a close family member or maybe a best friend or maybe somebody who you really cherished and, and they're gone, that really wasn't part of the plan. Or maybe you had a career setback that has just, you since that time you've not been able to get your feet on the ground and you can't figure out, how do I turn this thing? How do I actually... Uh, you would understand where the Thessalonians were if you've been in that spot. Uh, They had expected the Lord Jesus to come back in their lifetime, but they did not expect that their loved ones would die uh, before he did. And so this totally messed with their faith. It just kind of stripped them down to rock bottom. You ever gotten to a place where life happened and it rattled your faith? Like, wow, what do I even hang on to at this point anymore? You had that happen? Some of us have. The Thessalonians had that. And uh, not only did it mess with their faith, but it messed with their theology, um, which is another fancy word for the way they expected God to work. And again, notice that for the Thessalonians, it's a timing issue. It really isn't a theology issue in the sense, is Jesus going to come back? Uh, because they were sure he was going to come back. What was off? The timing. And I found this to become really true uh, in my life the, the older I get. My problem most of the time isn't with what God said he would do. It's his timing behind it. Any of you wrestle with that? I mean, just uh, somehow my timing doesn't seem to be his. And I don't seem to be able to figure that out. Right? And so I find myself often going, <laughs> oh, back that way, you know, kind of thing. I'm glad I see nodding heads and I'm not the only one. So here's what Paul was trying to say to the Thessalonians. He's saying, first of all, he says, okay, look, you're okay, even though you're grieving. Remember we talked about that? Uh, it's okay for Christians to grieve. And it's all, it's, there's not a problem with that. You don't have to be super saint. 
But in the midst of grieving, you still have to keep Jesus uh, in sight. But then he was saying, your loved ones just, here's, hello, hint, clue, your loved ones, ones you're grieving over, uh, they're more than fine. And actually, they're going to rise and be united with Jesus before you are. So stop worrying about them. They're in good hands. Okay? And I think for the Thessalonians, that, that may sound funny to us at this point, but for them, that was incredibly comforting. Oh, you mean, oh, they're, well, oh, all right, cool. Well, then I just have to keep walking because if I do, then I'll meet them too. And we'll all, be, all right, good. And then when Jesus comes back, we'll be reunited with him and be with him forever. Oh, we get to be back. Awesome. All right, then the fear is taken away. It's just a, a temporary separation. I can deal with that. And, and it proved to be incredibly uh, comforting for him. So Paul is um, giving these encouragements. And the, so the first one is for grieving. The second one is an encouragement for salvation. All right? He wanted to encourage them to stay strong in their salvation. Next week, we're going to talk about the helmet of salvation. In Thessalonians, the first time that he actually pulls that image out and uses it. Uh, Later, it becomes famous in Ephesians. But in Thessalonians, actually the first time the raw idea of it comes out. But Paul's saying, stay locked into uh, your salvation. He says, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. Now the key question here is why will it catch them by surprise? How is it that this idea of salvation would would catch them by surprise? That Paul could say it actually comes like a thief in the night. And I want to suggest the main and simple reason why they'll be caught by surprise, they won't be paying attention to it or even looking for it. Okay? The idea today that people are sinners and need a Savior and they should find that Savior at all costs is ludicrous. Uh, crutchology would be what it's called. It's mocked of, it's made fun of. And so the idea here of why it will catch them by surprise is, is this. You don't look for or expect the return of someone who in your mind doesn't exist. Right? Why would I look for someone who doesn't exist? And so Paul says, because they're not even looking for it, it's going to catch them by surprise. He uses the term thief in the night to express the the suddenness of it. You know, when you think about it, a thief does not announce his coming or his intentions. Cheerio, mate, I've come to rob you. I say, do you need a few minutes? Oh, dashing, my good fellow, would you like me to put on a spot of tea? Is that how it works? No. Okay, lousy British accent, but you get the point. They don't knock on your door and say, would this be a good day for me to rob your house? Right? And Paul's saying the same way when Jesus comes back, he's not going to be asking permission. He's not going to wonder whether it's okay with our time schedule. He's not going to knock on the door and say, would it be all right if I came back now? No? Let me know when I will. I'll check back with you. That's Paul's saying it's not going to work that way. He is going to burst upon the world as a thief in the night for the simple reason they aren't looking for him. 
Paul goes further to equate the shock of the whole thing by saying it's like birth pangs. So not only a thief at night, but it comes upon the world like birth pangs. In other words, once it gets started, you're not going to stop it. Amen, ladies? Right. I mean, once it starts, it's going to roll. And so he describes this as it comes, is that it suddenly comes and it will come, and he, the description is sudden destruction, which means a complete loss of everything. It is um, truly a horrific thought. And you can easily see why people reject it or deny it. But Paul is saying to the Thessalonian church, you should not be that way. You should be watching. Be firm in your salvation. Know who saved you. Know who and what you're standing in. There's a specific point in this. Uh, Let me go to the next slide. He says this, But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day, and we are not of the night or of the darkness. So he uses this illustration of light and dark and says, Hey, here's night and darkness. Here's light and day. You are not that anymore. You are this. So think like this. Anchor like this. Expect like this. Now, how or why could or would Paul emphasize this specific point? What, what is it that he's locking in on? There are a lot of reasons, but one specific and especially poignant one for why he uses this illustration for the Thessalonians, I think, was simply because Paul himself knew what it was like to go walking from darkness and become a child of light. Paul knew what it was to be wrapped up in darkness. Paul knew... He did some nasty things. Paul, as Saul, was not a good guy. He was a very religious guy, but he was not a good guy. And he knew it. And he knew what he harbored inside, and he knew what he had done. And he also knew what it was like to get knocked off his donkey on his butt, lose his eyesight, have the scales removed, and then be able to see and come to know the Lord Jesus as Savior. And he's like, Let me explain that process to you a little bit, right? And then what he's saying to the Thessalonians is, hey, just like that happened for me, that's happened for you as well. And church, 2,000 years later, just like it happened for Paul, he went from darkness to night, just like it went for the Thessalonians, right? That they went from wickedness to day, or from night to day. Like us, we've also experienced that process. We know what it's like for the Lord to grab us. Now, if we had the stories and we just started marching you up one at a time and brought you up, right? Starting with my buddy Cody down here and we just moved down the rows, you would hear a lot of different stories, but you would hear one really consistent theme. And what's that? I once was lost, but I'm now found. I once was in darkness, but now I'm in light. I once was a child of the night, but now I'm a child of the day. And that is Paul saying, make sure you are anchored in that. Be alert to that. Why could um, Paul say that? Um, well, I think that what he's talking about is the Thessalonian church getting rattled that that process somehow wasn't really that process and starting to doubt that process. 
And Paul says, don't doubt the process. Mercy Me uh, has a great song. We rock out to Mercy Me in our car. And, uh, and, and I forget which album it is. All right. Um, I don't know. And, um, but uh, it captures this whole idea of transaction with the light. Uh, it's their song, Welcome to the New You. Or Welcome to the New. That's it. And it, it reads like this. It says, got to live right just to stay in line. You've heard it all at least a million times. And like me, you believed it. They said it wasn't works. But trying harder wouldn't hurt. It sounds so crazy now, but back then you couldn't see it. But now here you are, eyes wide open. It's like you're seeing grace in a brand new light for the first time. Let us be the first to welcome you. Welcome to the life you thought was too good to be true. Welcome to the new. Welcome to the welcome to the new. You broke your back to keep all the rules. You jumped through hoops to make God approve of you. Oh, tell me it was worth it the whole time you were spinning plates. Did you stop to think that maybe he is okay with just you and there's no need to join the circus? But now here you are, a new point of view. And now it makes sense. That's why it's called good news. I love that line. Can you tell? Let us be the first to welcome you. Welcome you to the life you thought was too good to be true. Welcome to the new. Look at you, shiny and new. Look at you, you've got proof of purchase. You were purchased because you were worth it. Look at you finding your groove. Don't dare to think you're not worth it because you're worth it. Yeah, you're worth it. Oh, let us be the first to welcome you. Welcome you to the life you thought was too good to be true. Welcome to the new. It captures that in just a vibrant way, this transaction of going from night to day, from dark to light. Romans speaks about this in chapter 10. When it's talking about how do you find that salvation? How do you find that light? How do you move from there? It says, the word is very near you. It's in your mouth and in your heart. Why? Because God wrote the law in our hearts. That is the word of faith that we proclaim because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Why could Paul say that? He could say that because he knows we talk about what we love. Right? If you've got a hobby and you really like your hobby, it doesn't take too long before your friends start talking to you and ask some questions and pretty soon that hobby comes bouncing out, right? We talk about what we love. We talk about what's moved us. We talk about what has grabbed our attention. And so Romans says, when that grabs the attention in your heart, then you start confessing it with your mouth because you can't do anything else. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. One of the greatest promises in the Bible is if you call out to him, you will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between the Jew or the Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Ephesians captures this battle with light and darkness also. Uh, I'm looking at Ephesians 2, verses 1 to 10, you know it, but it does a fantastic job of drawing this contrast between darkness and light. Works, which is trying to earn your way to heaven, versus grace, which is God doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. Works is us reaching up to God. Grace is God reaching down to us, right? It says this, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in what you once walked, following the course of this world, following 
for the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is work in the sons of disobedience, and among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. The Bible's very clear about the problem between us and God. It is a hostility problem. It is an authority problem. It is a control problem. We do not want Him to tell us what to do. We do not like that He holds the cards. We do not like that there's a judge of the universe. And it says we are hostile. It calls us children of wrath. And outwardly we may not ever look like that, right? We're not that dumb. That's a dumb way to operate in the culture. You don't get very far if you do that. But inwardly we can really rage. A lot of us walk around like this, right? Every time God tries to bomb us, like this. Or we do this because it feels better and it seems like we're asking him in. But most of the time it says we're like this. We're hostile. We're chilling around. And then it goes on to say this. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love in which he loved us, notice it points to the source. It's God reaching out to us. He loves even when we were dead in our trespasses. He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God. I know as, as I look back, two things that astonish me. One, back when I first got saved, I thought I had found Jesus. I did not realize it was him who found me. Right? And the other thing is, as I look back now, I am starting to be stunned more and more as I look back at the unique and peculiar circumstances that are my life, how it is that he actually found me and I got saved. It becomes more astonishing And as I look at all the layers I can see now, I recognize that God could see all that way back then. And where I thought I had found God, I realized God had found me. And many of us can relate to that. I see your heads nodding. For we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So let me not just jump over this because Paul is talking to the Thessalonians about be very strong in the encouragement of salvation and you might not be saved this morning. And Paul's saying, don't miss that. We're coming up on Easter. Don't just treat it like a holiday. Don't just treat it like a, a church event on the calendar. Easter speaks of something. That a Savior came and died on the cross and rose again. We believe that. That's what we teach here. And Paul is saying, pay attention to that. And the question this morning would be, do you need God to do for you this morning what you cannot do for yourself? Do you need God to do for you this morning what you cannot do for yourself? And that is pull you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Are you crying out this morning, God, please extend your grace to me. Pull me out of my darkness. I desperately need your light. There may be some of us this morning that are saved, but we know we've been swallowed up by darkness. Here's a way you could say that. Let me offer this to you. Lord Jesus, I quit. 
can't work any harder. My sins are over my head and they have engulfed me in darkness. I desperately need you and your saving grace, your light to rescue me. Please come and make me your child, a child surrounded, protected, and rescued from the darkness. I give up and surrender to your leadership and make a commitment to follow your lead, the lead of your Holy Spirit, and to walk in the light as you are in the light. Amen. Let's, let's do that for a minute. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? For the sake of God working next to somebody around you. Let me read that again. Lord Jesus, I quit. I can't work any harder. My sins are over my head. They have engulfed me in darkness. And I desperately need you and your saving grace. Your light to rescue me. Please come. Make me your child. A child surrounded, protected, and rescued from the darkness. I give up and surrender to your leadership and make a commitment to follow your lead, the lead of your Holy Spirit, to walk in the light as you are in the light. Amen. Anybody this morning, just keep your eyes closed, please. Anybody this morning that that would be true of, if it is, would you just slip up a hand? I see that hand. I see that hand. Thank you. Anybody else? It spoke to you this morning. This is where you are. You hear the Holy Spirit bumping you. You sense the darkness. I see that hand. Thank you. You sense the hostility. You want to make peace. You want to be a child of light. You want to be anchored in salvation like Paul's saying. I see that. Thank you. Father, as we stand before you, there are some people that you're speaking to and doing holy transaction with. It's not just words, not just theology, not just a good idea. It's not just church. They are meeting you, the living God, through your Son, Jesus Christ. And this issue of hostility, this issue of authority, this issue of walling you out is one that you are consistently bumping against and pushing against because you're trying, trying to break through to try to rescue us. Lord, I pray for your comfort, your confidence, just like when I first came to know you. May everything be the same. May everything be totally different because of the light of your spirit in these people. And we give that to you in your name. Amen. All right. Hey, after the service, if you want to come up and talk to me, would you do that? And let me know or shoot me an email and we can grab coffee and we'll dialogue, okay? I can't think of a better way to head into Easter than to invite the light of Easter, the Lord Jesus Christ, into your life. Right? For you, it's not going to be routine or holiday. It's going to be the first Easter you walked in as a believer. Whoa! Jesus! Woo! Can we say that in church? Yeah, I would kid. It's pretty exciting. You know, instead of talking about Him, you can now celebrate with Him. You know, it's really lousy to go to somebody else's birthday parties. You ever done that? You ever opened somebody else's mail? Right? Kind of dorky stuff. But when it's your mail, when it's your birthday party, it's really good. And when you realize Easter's for you, man, that's a cool thing. That's what Paul was doing for the Thessalonians. He's saying, remember, you are in the light. 
Remember whose children you are. You don't have to be afraid. You don't have to worry. He's got you. That's what he's saying. Then Paul goes into the next thing. Not just salvation, but alertness. The deep encouragement to be alert. And this, I think, will speak to us really well uh, in our culture. He says, so let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober. Now, back up for just a second. In the Thessalonian church, there were two things that Paul was trying to counteract. The first one is what we've been talking about is that people had died, they were in grief, and it had messed them up because it wasn't the way they thought it would roll out. We spent enough time talking about that. The second one was they were really pumped about their salvation. And they got excited about the idea that Jesus was coming back. And they were confident that he was coming back like soon, like now, like all right. And to the point where they got so excited, they quit their jobs, they quit their responsibilities, and they literally went and sat on a hill waiting for Jesus to come back. And Paul is countering both of those. Don't get so caught up in grief. Hang on, Jesus has got that. But also, hey, wait a minute. Timing might not be what you think it is. Come back to that timing thing again. Right? You know, some of you uh, here are uh, mature, which means 70 and above. Right? You've been waiting for him for a long time, right, my friend Dorothy? I'm looking at you smiling back there. Yes, you are. It's been a long time. Like, good grief, is this, you know, ever going to happen? So Paul is talking to both of these groups about stay alert. In other words, keep paying attention. The word I would use is be steadfast. The reason I would use that word is that's the word God uses with me all the time. Steve, be steadfast. Don't go way up. Don't go way. Stay in the middle. Stay steadfast. Stay with it. And so uh, there's two pictures here. One is uh, sleep. Now, when you read this passage, let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. Paul obviously is not suggesting that you not go to sleep tonight. All right. That's not the picture of what he's trying to say. What he's using sleep as is uh, much how Proverbs uses sleep as sleep of the sluggard, right? The person who just lays in bed all day and never wants to get out of bed and isn't doing what they're supposed to be doing. In other words, sleep becomes a way to hide. And he's using it that way. He's using it as a a metaphor. The idea of you're not watching or not paying attention. We have this, right? We use this in a lexicon. We talk about if someone isn't uh, doing their job or not paying attention to a job, we say they are what? Asleep on the job? Or asleep at the wheel? Right? We use the same. That's, what Paul, that's how Paul's using it. He's saying, don't be asleep at the wheel. Don't be asleep on the job. Meaning, they weren't paying attention to what they were supposed to be paying attention to. They got off on something, got all hyped up, and weren't doing the things they were supposed to do. Not to pick on them, but uh, the disciples falling asleep in the Garden of Gethsemane is a really good illustration of this. Right? Spirit willing, but the flesh is weak. They knew they were supposed to be praying. Jesus said, can't you even pray with me one hour? And apparently not, right? They snoozed off and uh, weren't ready for when that really happened. But there's another way to look at this sleep as well. And that's, um, if you want to turn there, Matthew 25, this is a story about stewardship. And in this story, there's a steward 
uh, a, a manager, and he, um, he, he has three stewards. And what he does, this manager gives each of these stewards a certain amount of talent to work with. So one, he gives five talents, one he gives two talents, and one he gives one talent. And it says that later he went away, and then he came back, and it says the one who he had given five talents to had been industrious, had uh, given forethought, and when he came back, he was able to double that, and he was able to give uh, ten talents back to the master. The master said, well done, good job, come on. Uh, that's Mitch paraphrase for what's in your Bible, all right? Then he gave to the guy who's two, and the guy says, you know what, you didn't give me five, but you gave me two, but I took good care of the two, and I've doubled that, and now I have four. master says, well done, good and faithful servant, right? And he says, you come in too. Then he came to the guy who he had given one. And listen to how this goes with the one. Starting with verse 24. Then the one who had received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. Okay? Now, just stop for a second. Take that out of spiritual language. Put yourself to being a kid. You, when you were a kid, did you ever go to your mom and dad and say, hey, here, this is yours. How well did that go? Right? Not very well, right? And it doesn't go any better in this parable. Look at what happens here. He says, the master answered him, you wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scatter no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers and at my coming I should have received uh, what was my own interest. At least you could have done is put it in the bank and I got interest off it is what it's saying there. So take the talent away from give it to the one who has ten talents for everyone who has, who has more will be given and he who will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into outer darkness, into the place where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, we can spend a whole lot of time on all that. That's not the point this morning. The point this morning is this. He literally took that talent, hid it in the ground, and put it to sleep. Right? It was resting in the ground. And when it came out of the ground, when the master came back, he said, Here, this is yours. You should be happy. He threw God his bone. Did it go well for that servant who put the talent to sleep? No. Right? Now, think about that. You have uh, talents given out. So over here we got five talent guy, all right? In baseball, Mariner season, all right? Going to be a good season, people. I'm predicting right here, 97 wins, playoffs. Okay? Heard it from me. You're saying for the Mariners? I'm going, yep. Five talent. We call that in baseball a five-tool player. Five-tool players got it all. Five-tool player can, I mean, just, man, that was, you know, if you remember back here, Ken Griffey Jr. in his heyday, uh, Alex Rodriguez in his heyday, Randy Johnson in his heyday, we had five-tool players. They were like world-class, right? And then, thankfully, we got rid of Alex. All right, so, but, <laughs> five-tool players. They got it all, and, and, and they, this guy took and he multiplied it, right? And then you got the two-talent players, right? And they don't have as much as the five-talent, and, but they, they're still responsible. And then over here you got the one-talent player. <laughs> I'm the one-talent guy, right? You ever look at and have talent envy? 
You ever look at other Christians and say, man, if I only had their gifts, if I only had their skill, if I only could do what they do, then I would really get serious about the kingdom because I'd have the tools to do it with. Do you ever realize what we're saying when we say that? God, you shorted me. God, you've ripped me off. I'm not even, I'm the half shekel guy over here. Okay? How unfair is that for you to be mad at me when you've given him five and you've given him two and I get one? What can I do with one? Well, you can do a lot with one. That's the whole point of the story. Don't bury the talent in the ground. You are uniquely placed everywhere you live. Okay? Where you work, the neighborhood you live in, the store that you shop at, the friends that you hang out with, none of that is by chance. Scripture says that God has placed every man uniquely in his place for the kingdom of God, for its service. So if you're a one-talent person, it really doesn't matter if you have a five-talent person or a two-talent person. What are you doing with your one talent? Because if you're just sitting on your big, fat duff, and doing nothing with it, and sticking it in the ground, and you're sleeping through life, hoping something will get exciting somewhere down the road, you're blowing it. That's what Paul's saying is, Thessalonians, don't blow it. Don't fall asleep. You are not sleeping. Be in the light. Be in the light with your one talent. By the way, it's not greener over here on the five talent side. Some of you are saying, oh, if I could only speak like Pastor Steve. I'll give you my week this week. You want it? You'll be in tears by the time I get done telling you what came down. It's not greener. It's do what God has asked you to do. And by gum, if you're a one-talent person, then you be the best, most awake one-talent person there is. And you use that one-talent person. You know why? Because God can take a talent and turn it into a million. Some of the least talented people have done some of the greatest things for the kingdom of God. We're measuring it wrong. We're looking at it wrong. Paul's saying... Be alert. How has God gifted you? Not how has he gifted your mate. How has he gifted Pastor Steve? How has he gifted Zach? How has he gifted... Not how has he gifted you? What can you do for the kingdom? Why has he placed you where he's placed you? What is it you are supposed to be about? Don't just sleep your life away. Wake up and do it. That's what he's talking about here. This dude, the one-talent dude, he didn't even put it in the bank so it would reserve interest. Be alert. Be steadfast in the opportunities that God presents to you. Have you seen Jesus at work in your world this week? I remember asking Matt that one time. He goes, no. I said, well, do you know what to look for? No. Have you thought maybe we should start looking? No. He's 11. You've got to give him some slack, right? He'll get there. But that's a bad thing if we're all saying that. We should be able to look to see where he is. Henry Blackaby says, find where God's working and join him. What's Paul's encouraging here? He says, look, we don't sleep like other people who don't have the light, but rather we are awake to the opportunities that God presents to us. So stay patient, stay steadfast. Keep looking for him and he will come for you. The second one is soberness. I think we know this one pretty well because, uh, you know, the picture of one of drunkenness. Drunken people are usually not very good at paying attention or being steadfast. Really? Well, that's your first clue. All right? I mean, they, right? You didn't get that, did you? They, 
they bounce into things, they run over things, they fall off of things, they break things, right? And they are not paying attention. One of the things about a drunk is they will spend all that's supposed to go to the family on themselves and their habits. We, we, the stories are multiple. We know how it works. Some of us have run that battle. We know the, the horror of it. Right? Paul's saying, don't be uh, drunk. Be sober. We are not people who get drunk at night. We're rather people who are sober in the day. And the picture here are people who have given up and are no longer looking because in their eyes, Jesus is taking way too long. You ever been there? How long before God comes through with my prayer? How long before God answers me? When's he going to come back? I've been saying forever. My goodness, I've been sitting around here forever. When's it actually going to happen? Matter of fact, the way I look at it, a person will say, it's been so long, there's probably a good chance he isn't even coming back. Maybe the skeptics are right. Maybe this is all a really good rig things and pastors have figured out how to make a living by um, hosing people on the fact that this is actual history and reality. Maybe he's not ever coming back. So then if he's not, well then it doesn't really matter what I do or don't do anymore. So I might as well play. Right? You ever just wanted to play? Oh, I wish life wasn't so serious I could just play. You know, this if you go to Exodus um, chapter 32, this is the story of Moses going up and getting the Ten Commandments. It captures the spirit of this, what it's saying. So Moses goes on the mountain, right thunder and lightning. He walks up 40 days and 40 nights, and they're sitting down here. And 40 days is a long time. Still up there? Yeah. See anybody see him? No. Hear anything? No, nah, just thunder and lightning and trumpets. Okay. You know, this has been a week. How long is this going to go? Are we there yet? <laughs> Anybody see him? No. <laughs> right? By the time it got done, they said they no longer even noticed the thunder or lightning or quaking or trumpets on the mountain. And they start saying, you know what? It's hot down here. It's a desert. And this Moses, we don't even know what's happening. He's probably died up there. It's been so long. And they uh, gathered the gold jewelry. And Aaron says, okay. And he, he crafted these... Uh, you know, idols, these, uh, they were cows. Of course, he lied to his brother about it, right? What did he say? Oh, I threw the golden fire and it jumped out. I mean, bro, come on, right? And, you know, this is bad stuff. If you were in a family line of order here, Aaron's older than Moses. Imagine confessing to your little brother that you sinned against him. Oh, that's bad, right? But that aside, what it says is that they looked at it and they said, the people sat down to eat and drink and they rose up to play. Now that is not Monopoly. When it says they rose up to play, they rose up, they started to party, they started to drink, and when they started to do that, they started immorality and all heck broke out in that camp and all kinds of evil started to happen. And if you want to find out how the rest went, Moses came back down. You can read it in Exodus 32, but needless to say, it didn't go very well for them. Right? Because... They weren't paying attention anymore because they were drunk. Jesus captures the same idea perfectly in a, in a short picture he gives when he's talking about the last time in Matthew 24. Turn to Matthew 24, look at verse 45. He captures this, a, a servant operating in the light and a servant operating in the darkness. And he contrasts the picture of the two. He says this, 
Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? In other words, there's a responsibility here. You get that? This servant is responsible for the stuff at the house and he's in charge of other people. And God says uh, he's giving them their food at the proper time. Blessed is that servant whom his master will find doing so when he comes. I.e., again, what has Jesus given you to do as your responsibility? Truly, I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, now notice the flip, how fast. He went from, the picture goes from a good servant operating light to suddenly a wicked servant. What is the attitude of a wicked servant? Here's what the wicked servant says. He says, my master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards. The master of that servant will come on the day when he does not expect him in an hour he does not know, and he will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. What is Jesus saying? A servant can go from being a good servant to a wicked servant because they quit paying attention and they no longer do their responsibilities, but now they start to play. Right? How many, people, you, how many of you know Christians that were following the Lord and then went off in immorality? How many you know went off into other things? How many do you know people who should be here this morning who aren't, who could fill these empty seats? We know if we told the stories, they'd be innumerable, right? What that means is really good people can do really wicked things if they get their eyes off of their responsibilities and what they're supposed to do in the Lord. Now, here's the good thing. That can be taken somewhat negatively, but here's the encouragement. The encouragement for Paul to the Thessalonians is they were not like that. He wasn't pounding on them saying, you're the wicked servant. You're doing... He said, no, no, you're doing good. Here's some encouragements for you. Line up because you're not sleeping and you're not drunk. You're doing a good job, so stay with it. He says, so then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. And those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober. Right? Let us stay focused. Remember, one of the key points that we've been making is that God's people are always encouraged to be alert and watching. Steadfast is the word uh, that I would use. Here's why. When it comes to end times and it comes to the day of Christ, the parousia or the day of the Lord, there is, there's a lot of good scholarship there's a lot of good studies. But none of the camps know the timing. All right? It could be in five minutes. It could be in five days. It could be five years. It could be five centuries. Now, do I think it would be in five centuries? I don't. All right? But if we're alert, if we are paying attention to our salvation, if we're staying um, awake and sober, and we're looking for him and saying, it's your timing, not my timing, then the reality is it won't matter if he comes back in five minutes. I mean, wouldn't it be something if he came back right now and we're actually in church? Hey, we were just talking about you. Awesome. But it won't matter if he comes back in the next five minutes or the next five years or the next five centuries. We will be awake and sober and ready for his return. Here's the spirit of it. First Peter Another place, uh, Zach had First 
Peter up on the board this morning. Therefore, preparing your minds for action. There's that word again. And being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Maybe this morning you just need to get back to primary focus. Scripture calls that first love. Primary focus. Set your eyes back on Jesus. Deal with the authority issue. Put your trust, all the eggs in his basket, and start looking for what he's asking you to do. Start looking for your responsibility. What has he asked you to be a steward of? Prepare your minds for action. Be sober-minded. Set your hope fully in the grace that we brought to you, the revelation of Jesus Christ. We'll finish up in Thessalonians 5 next week. Let's pray. Lord, as we cover this, um, there could be those this morning who are doing a good job. They have been very alert, very sober, and uh, they're doing well. This was a great encouragement to them. And then, Lord, there also may be those who have been asleep at the wheel, not really paying attention, and, and they realize it's a wake-up call and, and they've got to refocus. Would you give them the grace to do that? Lord, there's some might be here this morning who feel like their sin cancels them out. They just can't clear it and disqualified because of that. And they feel like they're darkness instead of light. Lord, again, your grace overcomes that greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. Raise up that light within them. Forgive them their sin. Wash them this morning. May they come out of church feeling clean. Lord, there's some of us who are full of anxiety, full of fear, and we just need to be steadfast. Not get too hyped up, not get too low, but stay steadfast, take one day at a time, and just keep following in faith. Lord, may they have great encouragement. We give that to you, Lord. We seek you for that. We ask that what you encourage the Thessalonians would be our encouragement in you, and we ask this in your name. Amen.